Welcome to Voices from the Cathedral, a podcast that brings you sermons, discussions, and other performances from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. On Sunday, October 21st, the Reverend Canon Dr. Patrick Malloy preached on the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, Proper 23, Year B. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. For the past couple years, I've, um, my mind has been wandering back to high school, and in particular to the dystopian novels I read all those many hundreds of years ago. I, I think about Brave New World, I think about 1984, and I realized back then when I was in high school, I had no idea what those books were about. I had no idea, and now I know exactly what those books are about. So a couple weeks ago, I found myself in an actual bookstore in Barnes & Noble. I can't tell you the last time I was in an actual, an actual bookstore, wandering around for hours, and I came across a copy of Fahrenheit 451, just like those other books, really, but I'd never read that one. So, so I picked it up. Do you know Jesus actually gets a mention in Fahrenheit 451? There's actually talk about Jesus in Fahrenheit 451. The novel is about book burning. It's about, it's about us. It's about the United States in the 21st century, though it was written three years before I was born. Um, it's about the American government's war on books. Um, now, the government didn't begin the war, if you know the novel. Ordinary people began the war on books, but eventually the government realized that for the sake of efficiency, they might as well take the war over. And so... They have firemen who don't put out fires, but set them to burn up books, and that's what firemen do. The problem with books is that books contain contradictory ideas. You read a book, I read a book. They may not be the same book, and we get contradictory ideas. Or even I and you read the same book, and we get different ideas from it. Reading books makes people think. Reading books forces people to decide for themselves what they think and what they believe. And what that does, in a sense, is it makes us unequal. Because if I think one thing and you think another, we're not exactly equal, are we? We're, we're different. We're not equal. And the premise of Fahrenheit 451 is that the government wanted really to make, finally, the dream of America come true, that everyone would be equal which meant we all should be thinking exactly the same thoughts. And if we could do that, it would cut down all of the tension between us. We wouldn't have war, we wouldn't have dis discord, and at last, at last we would all be happy. At last the complexity would be cut out of life, the, the conflict would be cut out of life, and we would be happy, because complexity is hard. And simplicity is easy. And you know what simplicity is. It's clear in Fahrenheit 451 what simplicity is. Simplicity is things like sports. And all sorts of entertainment, like television that doesn't have much plot or much character. It 
That's what makes people happy, right? Mindless TV shows about things like, you know, I don't know, like tyrannical bosses who fire people, for example, or, or fiction that masquerades as news. Those are the things that make people happy, simple and happy. In Bradbury's 21st century, books are the enemy. They're the enemy of the United States. And so are all the things that come with books, solitude and introspection. Anything that allows us to think is the enemy. So three years before I was born, that was written. And Bradbury could have written, as far as I'm concerned, three days before yesterday. So we meet an old man in Fahrenheit 451, a man who remembers the Bible. He remembers it. It seems that there's really, by that point, probably only one Bible left in the United States. People, people still talk about Jesus. People still talk about Jesus. But the Jesus they talk about is not the Jesus that people like Mark, the evangelist Mark, who spoke to us this morning, the Jesus that they know is not the Jesus that Mark knew. And then this old man who remembers the Bible, an actual, the last copy of the Bible comes into his hands. He actually gets it. And as he holds this book, holding any book at this point is, is a treat, is, a, is, a, is an awe-inspiring event, but to hold the Bible, this man has this Bible in his hand, and, and here's what he said. It's good as I remember it. Lord, how they've changed it these days. I often wonder if God recognizes his own son the way we've dressed him up, or, or is it dressed him down? He's a regular peppermint stick now, all sugar crystal and saccharin, when he isn't making veiled references to commercial products that every worshiper absolutely needs. Well, the Jesus that the evangelist Mark knew definitely was not a peppermint stick, not sugar-coated, not saccharine by a long shot. And he did not sell products or ideas people wanted or the government wanted people to want. In fact, Jesus was the opposite of a sweet man who said sweet, sweet things that people wanted to hear. He was the opposite of what the government wanted. Even Jesus' closest companions really didn't want him. What his companions wanted was someone who would make them great in the way the world thinks of greatness. Isn't that what they said today? Make us great. They wanted someone who would make them win in the way the world thinks of winning. But all Jesus could offer them was the cross. This gospel story we hear today is it's one of many episodes where Jesus' disciples told him what they really wanted was to win. Win, I would imagine, until they were tired of winning. Where they told him that they wanted to be great, whether great again or great for the first time, I can't say. 
But whenever Jesus' disciples started down that road toward winning and greatness, Jesus always told them that he was on a different road. And his road led to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was the cross. There's that famous story, I know you all know it, about Peter's reaction when Jesus told them that he was going to Jerusalem, even though he knew when he got there he was going to be tortured and murdered. Peter was just outraged by the whole thing, outraged by the absurdity of what Jesus was saying. And that led Jesus to give us one of, the, probably one of the only Bible verses everyone in this room can actually quote from memory. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because here's what Jesus knew. It isn't winning, but it's losing that is the path to God. It isn't greatness, but it's lowliness. And to think otherwise, Jesus says to Peter, and, to, and he says it to us, to think otherwise is satanic. It is satanic. And then, Jesus says to them, then after all of that, there is resurrection. That's the part they wanted to hear, that there is resurrection. They wanted to hear the second part, but they didn't want to hear the first part. And there is no resurrection without the first part. And I can hear the old man. I often wonder if God recognizes his own son the way we've dressed him up, or is it dressed him down? The kingdom of God, the reign of God, is not about winning, and it's not about greatness. But Jesus tells us how to recognize the reign of God and the picture that Jesus paints of the reign of God is not about winning or greatness. You know the Beatitudes when Jesus tells us what the reign of God is like. The reign of God, he says, is wherever you find people who are poor in spirit. And I wonder if that might mean generous. The reign of God has come when people are meek and hungry for justice and merciful and single-hearted, focused only on God and not on themselves. The reign of God has come when, when people seek peace and they hate violence and they hate war. The kingdom of God has come when people are persecuted and belittled and bullied because they are too generous and too meek and too much of all the rest. When that happens, the reign of God has come. There's not much winning in there. There's not much greatness. Or Jesus tells us what it will be like at the judgment. You know the story when Jesus speaks to people and they ask him, when, when Lord, did we see you hungry? We had that passage just a few weeks ago. Jesus tells us that the reign of God will be when we see hungry people being fed, and thirsty people being given to drink. When that happens, we are seeing the reign of God. When we see outsiders being welcomed in, 
and people who are naked and exposed in any number of ways. And you, brothers and sisters, know that there are a lot of people who are exposed in a lot of ways and vulnerable in a lot of ways that have nothing to do with clothing. When we see the sick of body or the sick of soul or the sick of mind, maybe more that than even sick of body, when we see them being loved even though they can't necessarily be fixed, when we see people trapped in prisons made of walls or prisons being made of drugs or prisons made of, well, who knows what, when we see people like that in prisons and alone, when we see them being tended, what we are seeing, Jesus tells us, is the reign of God coming to power right before our eyes. And in all of that, the winners are the losers and the greatest are the least. And when we call murderers murderers despite what it might cost us, there is the reign of God. And when we coddle murderers because it's financially advantageous to keep them placated, that is not the reign of God. I wonder what Jesus would say about all of this. I wonder what Jesus is saying about all of this. The Jesus who told Peter that we have to do the right thing no matter what it costs, even if it means entering a hostile Jerusalem and suffering and dying on a cross. Doing the right thing no matter what it costs is of God. And everything else is of Satan. The people in Fahrenheit 451 have built an entire industry to take care of people who are committing suicide. And that's an odd thing because their entire culture is supposed to keep people happy. But in fact, what it produces is people who are deeply, deeply unhappy. As Bradbury, Ray Bradbury imagines the United States in our century, he imagines an entire industry of people who run from home to home, pumping painkillers out of people's stomachs and giving them transfusions to save them from death. Overdose is so common that there has to be an industry to snatch them back from drug overdoses. This probably is a non sequitur, but do you know that if you walk down the street here to Walgreen, you can now buy without a prescription Narcan which is the, what you give people who are having opioid overdoses. You can buy it over the counter now, no prescription needed, so that when you walk down the street and seeing someone overdose on opioids, you can save them from death. There's probably no connection, really. The people in 21st century USA, that's in Bradbury's USA, not the real USA, uh, they smile all the time when they're in public. They smile all the time while they're being bombarded with nonstop big screen TV entertainment. He actually talked about big screen TVs from 1953. Even when they're in bed, even as they sleep, they have in their ears what Bradbury called seashell ear thimbles, something he made up so that they can constantly be having music in their brains so they never have to be alone with themselves. That was in 1953. Seashell 
Shishou ear thimbles didn't really exist. He made them up. But they exist now. We call them earbuds. I got a set of them with my iPhone. Even as they sleep, they dare not, dare not be alone because then they might know how unhappy they really are. Winning and greatness are not all they're cracked up to be. And not everything that looks like happiness really is happiness. I hope, I hope you, you know, if you go back here, those of you who are visitors, if you go back here, this whole east end of the church is surrounded by chapels. And the second one on this side is the Chapel of St. Boniface. And right now we have in it an, am an amazing collection of gold and silver objects that we brought out of, out of our treasury to see people. They're hardly ever on view, and they're back there now. We call them a treasure. We're calling it treasures from the crypt. When, when we were putting the exhibit together, the dean and I were standing back there, and the dean recalled a story about St. Lawrence the deacon, Rome, um, mid-third century. There was a persecution of Christians going on, and the emperor Valerian ordered that all the clerics in Rome be killed, but first they had to turn over the treasures. So Lawrence was the archdeacon, and as we Anglicans know, the archdeacon is in charge of the stuff. And so Lawrence was in charge of the stuff, and he knew that Valerian was coming for the gold and the silver, and then he was going to kill him. So Lawrence sold it all. As quickly as he could, he sold all of it, and he went out into the poorest neighborhoods of Rome, where the widows and the orphans and the crippled and the sick and just the dregs of society lived. And he gave all of the money from all of the treasures to these poor, poor people. And then Valerian came and demanded that Lawrence bring him all the treasures of the Church of Rome. And so he did. Valerian walked into the presence of the emperor, followed by the poorest, sickest, most despised people in Rome. And he said to him, here, emperor, here, are the treasures of the Church of Rome. And Valerian was outraged. And so not only did he have Lawrence killed, but he had him killed in the most gruesome way he could imagine. He had him barbecued to death while he was alive. They put him on a large grate over the fires, over a gridiron, and for a little bit of, to put a little bit of humor into this, that's why, believe it or not, Lawrence the Deacon is the patron saint of football because he was roasted on a gridiron. So there Lawrence is being roasted to death. And the legend has it that he said to his captors, turn me over, I'm done on this side. Lawrence was sound enough of mind and joyful enough of heart to joke with the people who were torturing him. So who won? Did Valerian win or did Lawrence win? Who won so much that he might have gotten tired of winning? had he not eventually died. 
And who in that story is the great one after all? Hear again the words of our Savior. Welcome to Voices from the Cathedral, a podcast that brings you sermons, discussions, and other performances from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. On Sunday, October 21st, the Reverend Canon Dr. Patrick Malloy preached on the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, Proper 23, Year 